And away we go. Um, so we're on unit four, which is on page 85 in your books. We are past Revelation and the Ten Commandments. We are now all the way to chapter 21. Um, and we, we turn to a segment um, of the Torah that is less dramatic and starts to give us examples of law um, that are kind of case examples. Um, according to some, they might have represented real cases, um, and according to others, they're more kind of like, I don't know what the technical term would be, but it's scenarios. It's not actually that they don't get to the detail of this is exactly what happened, but it's like hypothetical legal scenarios, and generally, you know, more like, I guess, a code in a sense, you know, generally what the law would be in regard to those scenarios. Um, and some of the features of this particular section are interesting, um, and I, I, I can only assume that's why the editors of the Melton curriculum, you know, decided to focus and stop here. What I find interesting about it also, which I hope that you will find interesting, is, is that normally, you know, if I was to go through this Parsha or something and Pick, a, pick out things to talk to you about because I tend to focus on narrative and philosophical and theological things, I probably wouldn't have stopped here. Um, so it's, uh, you know, maybe help you pay attention to a part of the, the Torah that you may, might not have before. Perry? Mishpatim. Uh-huh. Does it imply like little laws? Little sentences? Mishpatim? No. Mishpatim um, does mean sentences. Right. Is the other translation. But mishpatim are statutes. Right. Um, there are laws with rationales given. Right. But the, the suffix, no, does that imply it's, it's plural. Minor plural. Laws of plural. Just because oh, it's plural. plural. Like okay. Yiladim are okay, many course, children, okay. Yalad is a child. Right, of course, right, right. right so, right. It, yes, so it's just many, it's the plural. Okay. Um, and it just means that there's going to be a lot of statutes that are okay. given in this, right. in this law. So it doesn't necessarily mean minor, um, but sometimes it would imply that we're going to give you like a listing. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. um, you know that because these are the mishpatim. These are a bunch of bunch of the laws. We literally just started, so no worries. We're on page eighty-five. We didn't even start reading the text yet. You want to open a window? Sure. Yes. Yes. Sure. Yes. Sure. sure. Yeah. Um, it's a okay. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. All right, so we actually have a sh- you know a small amount of uh, Torah text. So I would love to read it out loud with you guys. Would anybody volunteer to be the first reader? You can do it in English. Anyone? Go ahead. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with stone or fist, and he does not die but has to take to his bed, if he then gets up and walks outdoors upon his staff, the assailant shall go unpunished, except that he must pay for his idleness and his cure. All right, pause. Scenario number one. Men, which I'm just going to help define for you, is, you know, they did mean men because they were the free people who were in charge of their households. Women were considered under the legal auspices of their husbands or fathers. Um, They strike one another with stone or fist. Does it say who started it? Does it say whose fault it is? It does not. Um, Then it says, and he does not die, right? So they get in some sort of fight. One strikes the other. Um... I don't know if the quarreling implies at the beginning that it's only really 
verbal and then one lashes out with a you know with a rock or a fist, you know, and and he does not die, but he but he take to his bed can either be taken literally, which you'll see, or it can mean like that was a pretty serious injury, is what it seems to be implying. It wasn't like a, you know a quick scuffle and you know we can both walk away and it's okay. Um, but he takes it. If he then gets up and walk outdoors upon his staff, which I don't know if you find it to be so, the rabbis found that to be a curious phrase. Um, the assailant shall go unpunished, except that he must pay for his idleness and his cure. What do you think that means? Damages. Lost time. Lost time that he could have been working, and his cure is the medical bills, right? All right. So. Let's like just Mish, like Mishnah, isn't it? This this is really this is where when Mishnah takes hold like as as the laws of this section of the Torah, it's a much easier job for the writers of the Mishnah later on because these read like right. rabbis would like these things to read, right? Because it's very legal. Um, but there's a lot of questions here. So I just want to go back for a moment. This is like totally open before we see what some of the commentaries do with it. What do you first of all what do you think it means if he then gets up and walked outdoors upon his staff? What do you, how are you feeling about the idea that the law is, is that he shall go unpunished? Um, and in general about how the law is framed and what the consequences are for him striking somebody else and causing him to take to bed, you know? Anyone? Any one of those questions or any of your own? <laughs> I took, uh, he walks upon his staff, meaning if he's Recouped enough that he's able to to do what he normally does. He's still which injured. Is, which is, he can still be a little bit injured, but you don't have to wheel him. You don't have to. He doesn't have to lay down. If he if he can do what he normally does, even with the help a little bit of help of the staff, then it's okay. Great. So he is the walking out upon the staff means is that he can get get around and start to do what he normally does. I'm putting this words in your mouth, but perhaps in parallel to. If he's not able to do that, you have to pay him for his idol, right? But once he's able to go out there and do stuff, okay, so then, fine, you know, you pay him for what he didn't work, and then, but now he's working, right? Now he's okay, so he, he can go out even, and you see the staff as, and, and one of the major commentators sees it exactly this way, um, you know, that he's, he can, he's still hobbling around a little bit because he needs a staff, but he's basically able to go and do what he needs to do. It's kind of like the hospital. You know, you, you, God forbid you have some sort of a procedure, surgery. You're not fully recovered, but they want you out of there if they see that you can walk and they see right. that, you know, you need a little assistance maybe, but, you know, you still, you still need to get out. Nice. Well, Any, but, anybody else? Yeah, go ahead. But Please, I'm, I'm troubled by the fact that he, ha- he has to walk out with a staff. There has to be some element of him still being somewhat disabled as he walks out. I mean, conceivably, they can get in a fight, the guy could be rendered unconscious, and he could be out for months. Right. And maybe in the loss of livelihood and everything, but he wakes up after months, and he walks out on his own two feet, you know, with no indication of, of any um, damage to him at that point. And, um, and the, the assailant, uh, apparently, at least from this sentence, um, walks away scot-free without paying any sorts of damages whatsoever. Wait, how do you see that? That he has to walk on his staff. Oh, you're saying that um, only if he walks on his staff. My my interpretation is that if he walks out with some sort of evidence of disability. I see what you're saying very lawyerly of you. Okay, excellent. Um, 
Uh, I don't know of anybody who goes quite in that direction. Okay. But to avoid, I'll just, because I don't want to spend too much time on the mm -hmm. commentaries in this section, because they're, in my opinion, not quite as intriguing. But um, one of the rabbis where I thought you might have gone and, and alleviates the problem that you're bringing up is they do not see his walking upon his staff as indicating that he still has medical issues. They see walking upon his staff as, well, that's, that's what people did back then, you know? Yeah. Grab your staff, it's, your, it's like, grab your hat, and we grab your keys, and out the door you go, right? It's like, walking on the staff means, like, he can get his staff, like, it's like grabbing his car keys, right? You know, he's, he's back out into the world, um, and that alleviates the idea that you have to demonstrate medical need or something like that. But I see what you're saying. I don't have an answer for that because that's not how the rabbis end up interpreting it. But um, it's it's interesting. So, but go ahead, Larry. Well, I, it, I just find it interesting that they can they consider the text considers paying for the this you know this compensation not to be punishment. So that just that is assumed like that that. <coughs> You just something that you should do. If you you cause it, you need to do that. But that's not punishment. That's just making them whole. And I might in our system, I think that would be considered. Those would be the damages. I mean, that's right. what you'd be forced to pay. It might be the same measure, but it would come from the way you, you are being going to be punished. That's what we have to do. Tell me if I'm. I might be in the wrong legal terminology because I'm clearly not an attorney. But um, what I see here in relation to what you're saying is, is that he's not treated, you know, he's not prosecuted criminally. This is all about the damages on like a civil level. Or even, but even civilly, In that sense, maybe even you... Even civilly though, you might say to somebody, you know, you took a rock and hit the guy in the head. You're going to pay this, you're going to pay that, and we're going to, you're going to pay something in addition because we don't want you to do that again. Right. Or, or you, you know, you cause, in, in our legal system, Pain and suffering. Right. right? That they don't have really here. Right. right. Exactly. But that. But they're saying he's going to go unpunished. So maybe they had something like that. But they're saying, or some other system had that. And they're saying, no, no, that's not our system. We. So that's an interesting question. Unpunished compared to what? Right. So, yes. Go ahead. We're just about what Larry. What Larry was saying. You know, under uh, American jurisprudence, we have concept called punitive damages mm -hmm. right. as opposed to damages. Right. Not right. just compensation, some penalty. But I was thinking that uh, unpunished, let's say the guy broke his arm. You know, you break the assailant's arm. Well, we're going to get to that. Right. Is that going to be eye for an eye, tooth for tooth? That's down arm, here, further arm. along. Mm -hmm. I'm waiting to have a tantrum over 22 yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, um, just to just to move it along for a second, I just want to point out that all, all the comments aside, it seems like compared to what is probably compared to what would happen if he had hit him and he had died. It would have been murder, and then he would be put to death. So was there no battery under their law? Well, there seems to be no. No criminal punishment for somebody like kind of punching somebody in the face, and the only thing is, is what, no, and, and even maybe no punitive damages, and j it's just damages. It's just kind of like compensating the guy for the, the amount of time he was out, and for whatever medical bills that happen. But um, criminally, there seems to be no no action taken at this point um, against this person. 
And we, it's, it is an interesting exercise in your mind to wonder why. Um, was it just common for people to get in these scuffles? Um, was it because, certainly monetarily, they didn't have a lot of cash that they were like passing around? Um, did they really want to lash people? Because that could be the other idea. Um, that would be really the main other... In, a, in the, the punishments, really, that are given out are some form of capital punishment or lashes um, or some sort of monetary settling of something. So the monetary is there to some degree, but not punitively. Um, it's not a capital punishment because he didn't kill him. The question is, is was, what, could they have used something in between, like the lashes, and they choose not to? Go ahead. Go ahead. Simon, you haven't seen I was going to say, they haven't uh, gone into any of the defenses that the person lashing out might have had. Maybe he was in defense. It's almost, you, know, you quarreled, and then the person who throws the first punch, maybe they were defending themselves, maybe they weren't. It's sort of right. silent and as to whether there was any... Yeah, it doesn't seem to matter. It's a later concept, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to comment about the term quarrel, too. It implies that, you know, this injury wasn't an accident. You know, they were engaged with each other. I would make other. the same comment. Right? Yeah. So so if there, definitely if not an accident. If somebody, it's not like an assumption of the risk involved here, you know. Unless it's some appears somewhere else, then there isn't going to be compensation if the accident. The accident happened. Right. It's got to come from a quarrel. Yes. All right. Awesome discussion. Um, let's move forward a little bit, um, if we can. Who is it? Oh, Beth, you were in. When a man strikes a slave, male now it's slave, right? That's yeah. the difference. Male or female with a rod, and he dies there and then, he must be avenged. But if he survives a day or two, and he is not to be avenged, since he is the other's property. All right. So what's the contrast here with um, the slave? This is grim. Well, I'm, I'm just saying that the punishment is grim here. Yeah. Um, what 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 jumps out at you, either in contrasting or about this laws or anything that you're interested in or that you think is you remarkable? Slave, slave, you can hurt your slave, but you can't kill him. Right. You can hurt your slave, but you can't kill him. Or her. Or her. With a rod. Go back. With a rod. Oh, good reading, Simon, right? That's going to come... Why, do you, why is that significant to you? Or are you just noticing it? Well, it's, it's different from the first, stone or a fist. Uh -huh. And it's very specific. So what if, I, what if I hit my slave with a stone or a fist? How? Right. So the rabbis are going to do something with the rod comment, right? Because he's punished. Well, is, wasn't that Good. A yeah. Did you read that or you just thought of that? No, go on. Excellent. I'm just, no, no. She said because the rod implies that he was being punished or she was being punished by the master. So one of the rabbis is going to make that distinction and say, hey, you can't just like beat up your slave and if it doesn't happen to kill him, it's cool, right? When it says with the rod, it's speaking about the scenario in which master is disciplining slave. Look, back then, you know, it was not as PC as it is today. And so one of the ways they disciplined each other is just sometimes children were disciplined this way, whatever it was. You know, he get, hits him with the rod. This is already, like, you can't do... If you're not disciplining him, you shouldn't be doing it at all. If you're disciplining him, even then you have rules, right? You can't, if you, if you go too crazy on him and you kill him, you actually can, avenge literally means usually in the Torah, avenged means comp, compensatory avenging, which means you'll be killed, right? It's actually a way of saying capital punishment back. So an owner who goes nuts on their slave and kills their slave actually can be can be liable for the death penalty for that. 
stands up for the slave to... to like, so good was question. There, was there like a court system or something like that? It's exactly. It, the way that the, the Torah seems to be and the way that the rabbis interpret it is this is now on the community. The community avenges. It's basically like the system, the, the, the police and the judge, judges system. They're the ones who carry this out. Um, but I don't know if that surprises you. If you know your ancient Near Eastern cultures... In, even though this is a little bit barbaric in the way compared to the way we do things in general, perhaps it's something to be like, wow, that's kind of interesting. I mean, the Torah actually valued the slave's life similarly to what the rule would be if is if you killed a non-slave, right? And then comes the difference. But go ahead. exactly, and that's the problem I have. Yeah, surviving a day or two. I mean, because so you, in other words, if you survive for twenty-four hours. But you, you die thereafter because I mean the proximate cause of the death is still the hitting of the rod. I mean presumably, although, although in that culture yeah. that might not have been assumed. No, no. Yeah. They may have assumed that twenty-four hours later meant that something else intervened. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think I don't know what was assumed, but I do think that the idea that if you survive that long and then the person dies, they would not have any way of knowing whether it was because the beating or something else. Uh-huh. Because they didn't have the same ability to medically track, you know, internal bleeding, all that kind of stuff. They didn't know. And just the doubt when it comes to... So the, the, the issue is, is that when it comes to a, freed person, a free person, you're strict when you're not sure. When it comes to a property, even if it's a slave property, a person property, they're a little bit more lenient, you know, with the, with the perpetrator in this case. Because... If there's a question, did he really kill him or did he not kill him, they're going to go lenient in the case of a slave. Well, maybe he didn't. Or maybe it wasn't because of what he did. So they're going to be a little bit more careful there. There is a distinction, I mean a real distinction, between the slave as property and the, and the wife as a quasi-property. Right. All right. Let's look at that one, verse 22. Will you keep reading, Beth? When men fight, and one of them pushes a pregnant woman, and a miscarriage results, but no other damage ensues, the one responsible shall be fined according as the woman's husband may exact from him, the the payment to be based on reckoning. But if the other damage ensues, the penalty shall be life for life. Keep going. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. When you might as well finish it off, yeah. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let him go free on account of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let him go free on account of his tooth. All right. Yeah. Now. That's probably the best way to get out of slavery. I'd kind of like take my mask around. Right, yeah. Punch me. Punch me. Punch me. Take my tooth out, man. Take my tooth out. Um, yeah, but if he beats you to, to you know within 24 hours. Yeah, yeah. I remember oh, oh, learning. That's enough. That's enough. Yeah. Yeah. I remember learning that uh, the thing with the eye, though, um, you're if your unfortunate uh, purpose in life is, is, I mean, if if your destiny is, is to be a slave throughout, you're no longer appealing to somebody else if you have an eye, if you if you don't have an eye. So mm-hmm. once you once you uh, lose your eye. Um, it's as if there's nothing else you can do. Which you're free, is, but you're like destitute. Right, which is why you're set free. How now, the tooth, maybe that's an aesthetic thing. I don't know. I'm not sure what that is. Well, that it is interesting. That mm-hmm. doesn't seem to make the same kind of sense as the eye. Mm-hmm. Um, 
right. I remember well, that. May, well, maybe, maybe the rule is there so you, you shouldn't be hitting your slave in the yeah. mouth. Right? Okay. You hit him yeah. up the body. Well, seriously, you, yeah. you hit him in the body, but you shouldn't be hitting him in the head. Right. So. You're, you're anticipating one, and I don't know which commentaries we're going to get to. I have my order of that, what I'd like to go in tonight, but like I said, I want to end a little early. We may not get to all of them, and sometimes just talking ourselves is better than looking at a commentary. So before I get to you, Perry, I just want to point out what Larry's saying. He anticipates one of the commentaries. It's basically you're saying, do you, do you notice these are head injuries, right? You know, if he's supposed to be disciplining a slave only, even if we don't like the idea of the corporal punishment that went on back then, but let's just say we're all understand and historically, okay, so this is what happens sometimes. That's okay. They can do that occasionally. Um, don't be whacking these people in the face, right? That's not an appropriate way to discipline. Because even if you're not just, just knock out a tooth, they're, they're, they're free, right? And God forbid you should hit them in the eye and cause them to lose their sight. I mean, that would be horrible. Go ahead, Perry. Well, down the Torah, there's a, another provision in later on where uh, if a slave you know, is a slaver, after seven years of slavery... You know, the, the slave is given the opportunity to go free. But the slave says, after saying, no, I want to stay with you. I don't want to be free. At that point, the, law, the rules change for the slave. Mm-hmm. Does that apply here? The answer to your question depends on whether you think this is about an Israelite slave or a Canaanite slave. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> the rabbis... It didn't make a distinction in the text. Does not. There's no distinction. Does not. The rabbis most of them end up saying that this quote-unquote even applies to a Canaanite slave, which they would like to read this as, which doesn't seem radical sitting here in 2016, but compared to the Near Eastern cultures that we're talking about, wow, um, a, a culture that you, the, 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 the rule was basically, you win the war, you take the captured as your slaves, and they were, they were literally, as we would say, and Yiddish, mamish, your property, right? They were like, your property, and you really could do whatever you want with them. And there was very little rules about, you know, the ethics of how you treat, treat your slaves. Um, to say that this applies to the Canaanite slave is like, wow, that a Jew could kill his Canaanite slave and not have to just pay some fine, and he would actually be subject to the capital punishment? That's like, for, if you're a historian, that's like a wow. Um, so, it's an interesting question. Um, but, um, yeah, they think that this applies to both, um, the Canaanite and the Israelite slave. And there are certain other protections that are afforded the Israelite slave um, in regards to monetary stuff and also this ability to go free, um, which doesn't happen for a Canaanite slave. They don't have the, those rules don't apply. Yeah. Sorry, well, since I've never been a slave, but I am a woman, mm-hmm. number 22 makes me crazy. Yeah, and tell me why. Wait, well, for the same reason as the rape of Dina made me crazy. Mm-hmm. And she was, the whole thing was about her father was upset, her brothers were upset. And that's the same thing here. I mean, the woman loses, she's hit, she loses her child, and it depends what her husband thinks they should do to make it okay. I get it that it's ancient. I'm just saying, ooh. Totally get it. Um... I think, from a conceptual point of view, what may or may not be interesting to you, but what I thought was interesting, is what is this saying about an unborn child? When does life begin? When does life begin? (laughs) This is one of our, in a negative way, our earlier texts that teach us that 
we do not consider a child in the womb to be, a, you know, a, a, equal to a human being. I, I know what you're saying, and I'm incredibly pro-choice. However, there is a woman who did not make that choice. Somebody hit her and caused her to lose her child. I'm, I'm actually not debating with you at all. I'm not proposing oh, okay. this on the other side of anything. Okay. I'm just saying this in addition to what you're saying, okay. Sorry. which is that um, what this teaches you is, is that... The, the, the baby in the womb is not considered to have the same status as an adult. Um, whereas, so, so here we have, they don't have an exact um, formula for determining the damages that are paid. It's to be reckoned, I, I assume it would be like, get an arbitrator, right? <laughs> and work that out. Um, it doesn't say exactly what the parameters are for how, what would make it a higher or a lower. It kind of seems like it's a negotiation that they're supposed to work out. Um, would a miscarriage no. occur within two days of, of, of the incident? Mm -hmm. Also, because doesn't this uh, bring it to longer than the paragraph in front of it? Yeah, it's um, a good point. It doesn't really give a time limit. My thing is, can you, for some reason, and can you if pinpoint? the slave dies, you don't know if the slave died from that injury. Two days later, do you know if the miscarriage happened? Right. Because presumably, with the medical care of the day, they didn't know. Which is not. Which is not. They right. I mean, it just happened, and they were like, okay. Right. And they moved on. It wasn't, you know, why did it happen? What can be adjusted so it doesn't happen again? It just happened. And moved it's on. it's a good point. Yeah. I don't really have an answer for you. So the miscarriage could happen, and you can go back and say uh, it was because of that. Yes. I mean, the assumption in the commentaries that I read, because I'm not a legal expert on this. But the assumption of the commentaries I read is that it w everybody was clear that the, this was a direct result. I didn't see any examples where they talk about if it was unclear or what happens if they come a month late. You know, I didn't see any of that stuff. Maybe there's discussion and then I just don't know about it. So all the commentaries that I read, it was like, it was always clear. They didn't really make a distinction. Right, so what's interesting also is in verse 23. What's interesting is verse 23. But if other damage ensues, then we get life for life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. We get as this. That's the damage to the woman. Is this applying to all the verses before? Okay, awesome. You're saying all the right questions and comments at the same time, which is lovely. Um, Larry's saying his opinion is that if, if other damage ensues, he assumed it has to be talking about the woman. Right, because. Because if no damage ensues. Right. So. It's a little unclear, but that's the logical conclusion is that we've already determined what would happen if, you know, the, uh, the woman lost her baby. What, does, what happens in regards to the loss of the baby? What about what happens if something happens to mom, right, during this fight of these two guys, which this, this, this little mini text is, seems to assume that men are fighting a lot, you know, so <laughs> all these scenarios. Okay, so if two men are fighting and they hit a pregnant woman, it seems by accident. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So um, it seems to be that it's about the woman, and if it's about the woman, then all of a sudden you get eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, everything, it's, it's so on and so forth. And the question becomes double, you know, what does this mean anyway, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? Is it only in applying to this case of pushing the pregnant woman? Or is this to be taken as some sort of principle that the law is laying down that actually can apply in other places or 
in addition back up to the top. Um, and we have a variety of answers to that question in our tradition. Um, some people who take eye for an eye a little bit more literally, and the vast majority who in different ways take it a, a, a lot more conceptually. Um, I think it's obvious to all of you. The main, if you're just taking it metaphorically or conceptually, what's the main idea behind an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth? Just compensation. Just compensation, right? You know, if I like, you know, do this to you on your nose or something, and I scratch you, I shouldn't be given the death penalty for that. It's like there's got to be some sort of balance here between like what I actually did and what the compensation or punishment is going to be. There has to be some. So an eye for an eye could literally mean I going to, you, you took my eye out, I'm going to take your eye out. Or it could mean if I take your eye out, then we're going to have to find some way of deciding what just compensation could be for that. For an eye. Yeah. For an eye. Right. Um, and, and by the way, for those who, the main part of the body of Jewish law went with the law that it can be done monetarily um, in terms of damages. Um, and then there was, there's also interesting discussion about that the value of somebody's eye could be different depending on the context. So if I'm an artist or a photographer or a pilot, let's just say that's the easiest one, I guess. Um, I'm a pilot and you take out my eye, you've just destroyed my career. Now, it's horrible to lose an eye no matter what, but I'm, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm retired. I don't even. I'm not working, so I don't depend on my eye even for for money. So that's maybe the easiest thing. I'm not working, right? And you take out my eye. What's what's the? How do you compensate in that regard? And the, the Talmud basically argues that whatever the standard is, the pilot is going to have to get more because he's going to have to. He's not going to be able to work anymore. Um, so and they debate about how much there should be a variance between you know the pilot and the person who's not using their eye in the same way as the pilot and all that kind of stuff. But it's it's very interesting. They're like dentist or a surgeon or something, and then they lose their hand. You know, okay, well now I got a new new, new job. Um, okay, so you have this concept out there. Does it apply all the way through? Is it more metaphoric? Is it more um, literal? Not 100% sure. And then we have this idea that we already talked about: is if you strike your slave. Um, and, and a certain type of, at least the eye and the tooth, and there's, there, was a, there was a midrashic type of answer, why the eye and the tooth, but the general answer is if you're hitting him in the face and you're, you're, you're really doing it out of cruelty or passion, then you, know, you, know, you, you lose the opportunity to have your slave. You start out by saying, and we don't know if these are actual cases or just hypothetical cases, and, and it seems that in some measure, it doesn't really matter if the text and shot is referring back to the woman or not, because if we can extrapolate, if these are some of the standard cases, then we can cover most, many, many other cases. Within them. Most, within them. Yeah. So if, there's, if damage ensues, eye for an eye, well, that kind of applies. You know, it's not a pregnant woman, it's just a guy on the street, but if, if there's an accident and two guys are fighting and he accidentally hit the third and he hurts his knee, then he should be compensated eye for an eye, you know, just like that. And then, you know, you can take from the, the, the slight, all, you know, these few cases really give you cover most if you really want to try to make an analogy. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 would, I would agree with that. Um, and it certainly gave the Talmud a lot of... Uh, a lot of fodder to uh, discuss the laws in all these different situations. Um, what I want to do for the for the for a second, for the sake of time, is I want to go back up to the beginning about um, you know the the two quarreling people, one who hits the other one, and the staff and all that stuff, 
And I'm just going to take over the reading for a moment. I want to read through Rashi quickly. Um, that is on page 88. Sorry, I'm on 88 in your books. Um, and then I want to get to Ramban Nachmanides, which is going to be commentary number two, which I want to spend a little bit more time on. Rashi says the following, right? He says, um, he's going he's gonna, to um, give his commentary uh, on the words Al-Mishanto, right? Which is on his, you know, with support or on his staff, okay? So he says, with his health, what, what's, what's the, what's the um, commentary for on his staff? With his health and his strength. That's actually what staff means, right? Not that he's recovering or limping. It's that his staff, this is what I was implying before. This means if he's on his staff and he's out the door, he's fine, right? He's got his health and his strength back. The assailant shall be cleared, right? You know, he's not going to have to be punished in any way. Now, would it enter your mind that one who did not kill should be killed? See, and this is where Rashi tips his hand that he thinks compared to what? He shouldn't be punished compared to the death penalty, Right? And he's like, what? Would it end you? Of course he's cleared of that. Like, why would, why would you think otherwise? Why does the Torah need to tell us this? But rather the Torah teaches you here that they imprison him until it becomes apparent whether the victim will get well. And this is the meaning. When this one gets up and walks on his support, then the assailant shall be cleared. But before this, before the victim gets up, the assailant shall not be cleared. So what Rashi's saying is actually this text is being stricter um, than one might see you know, at face value. That until the guy actually does get up on his staff and get his car keys and go back to work, mm-hmm. this guy who hit him, he needs to be confined. Could right? Go also, with the uh, miscarriage, if you get, <laughs> would, it, would that go back to 22? It said if, if no uh, miscarriage results, but how do you know that, yeah. you know, a couple weeks later there's a miscarriage? Um, it, it, it might, um, ex- except that, A, it doesn't say that it does there, so it might not. And B, whether we like it or not, in terms of the miscarriage, you know, the, the fetus is n- considered to be property or part of the person. I don't know if property is not the right word, but it's, it's, part, it's not a human being. Um, and, and we're dealing with another adult human being. So... There, I don't think they're as quite as ready to imprison people on the worry that they might be a murderer for the miscarriage. Whereas, if this person doesn't make it, <laughs> then this guy might be on the hook for murder. And so, you better... They don't want to go chasing him down. That's right. Flight. Yes. He's, he's, under, he's under lock and key until then. So that's what Rashi says. Isn't it also equal compensation? So... If I'm getting knocked out and I can't work for a week because I'm unconscious or broken leg or whatever it is, and why should this guy be able to work if he put me in that position? That would be an interesting case if you're going to apply, you know, the bottom of the, the text, you know, eye for an eye, back up to the top, that if he can't work, I can't work. Rashi's not saying that. Okay. Um, Rashi's not saying that. Rashi is basically, his concern is whether this person is liable for the death penalty. That's what he's comparing it to because he struck another human being to the point that he put him in bed, which especially back then, you know, they didn't have the type of surgeries that we have available and stuff. They saw this person, when you hit somebody so hard, they're in bed like this. The idea, of course, at least Rashi's thinking, is like he's between life and death. 
Like, is this going to heal or is he going to die? And until he die, until he heals and he gets his staff and he goes to work, right? Then this guy is might be a murderer, and you need to lock this guy up, right? And when he finally gets up and walks away, okay, so he's not a murderer. We can let him go. There, what's interesting is, at, for at least for me, they're not worried about this guy um, preventatively, right? It's not like he's a murderer. Whether the guy lives or not, the guy still the, the assailant still hit somebody and put him in, a, in the hospital, so to speak. Um, they don't seem to be concerned that he, about whether he's going to do this again or whatever. This is not what they're talking about. They're talking about what the, the punishment will be. And if the punishment is going to be the death penalty, then you need to have him in custody. That's brilliant. I mean, I, I, but the problem is, from my standpoint, is that he's saying this in 1100 AD. Right. And what about, I mean, is he, is he what is he relying on? I mean, that, that doesn't, that, that's his interpretation well after the fact. I mean, is there... Um, I'll tell you this. Uh-huh. We don't always know for the Rishonim, like yeah. somebody like Rashi, yeah. they don't often cite their sources or tell us where they got it from. Um, however, what we know 100% sure about, uh-huh. Rashi is a master of two different things because he does cite it sometimes or we find out later when if you look up in the Midrash. He is a master of the Tanakh. He knows every verse backwards and forwards and wrote commentary on most of the Jewish Bible. Two, he knows his early rabbinic law. A, he wrote the commentary on most of the Talmud. And B, he cites Midrashim and knows the Midrashic commentary well and through. The assumption is, is that Rashi is making his commentary based on both his knowledge as a scholar of the Bible and his impressive knowledge of the early sages, the Mishnah and the Gemara rabbis. But so what? I mean, I had the same thought as Perry. I think what you have to fall back. I think is what I mean. What you're saying in another way is that it's not in the shot. I mean, there's no mention of prison at all. But but the oral law that's been brought around through the Mishnah and the rabbinic side may have said that was the that was the interim. There may have been a mention of prison there that we wouldn't pick up from reading this text without knowing the other. So this is the interesting thing about Rashi. And this is just extra information for me to know. It's, it's good scholarly information. Rashi as a commentator, 12th century France, right? 11th, 12th century France. As a commentator, he is known as like the king of Pshat. What's Pshat? Pshat is the contextual understanding of the verse, right? A drash is a creative understanding. It's like a sermon on the verse. Rashi always presents himself and he says that his goal is to present you with the contextual understanding like if you are reading it this is what he thinks the meaning in its context is supposed to be so what's interesting about what you just said Larry is is that he's using the drash material to kind of give a creative spin on this yes and no Um, I think he would take issue with your, your description he would say I'm using my rabbinic knowledge to help you read how it's supposed to be read um, because otherwise, without my explanation, the laws don't line up, they don't make sense, and it's unintelligible. So it may not seem obvious to you as the reader that it should be read this way, but I, Rashi, because I know all this other thing, I'm going to read it in a way that doesn't seem obvious to you, but it is the pshat. It is the contextual reading. Now, I know we're just playing word games maybe to you. I just wanted to make that point to others who might not know about Rashi's thing. He, he, all, he believes that what he's writing, 
is the contextual understanding, the way it should be read, right? In its context, not to teach another lesson or to pull it out, right? He thinks that's what the Torah is trying to communicate to you about this. There is no mention in those words about prison or imprisonment. Correct. Right. That's all I'm saying. Uh, Absolutely. There may be in the discussion in the Mishnah and the Gemara. I, right. That's what, that was my original point. Right, right, is that he's using that knowledge. That, right, right. But he would say that that is the intentionality of the verse, right. to teach you that. The intentionality of the verse is, is to make sure. So, okay. Um, that's Rashi. Go ahead. I was just going to follow up on what Susan said about the, the miscarriage. You know, uh, in our first example with the, the striking with the fist or stone, that's an intentional act, whereas uh, with the miscarriage, it's more likely to be an unintended consequence of, you know. Yes. These guys are fighting, and she got pushed and hit. Right. Mm-hmm. It might more likely be accidental. Yes. It, it, it seems like pretty much everyone believes that in the case that of, the, of the miscarriage, that the men are fighting. That's what the, the men are fighting each other, and the woman gets pushed unintentionally, right? Um, it's not like, you know, the man just goes up to the woman and, like, pushes a pregnant woman. Um, it's 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 incidental in that sense. Um, all right. Commentary number two is the Ramban Nachmanides, 13th century um, from Spain. Again, I'm just going to take over the reading because I want to stop and start at certain places um, and probably not read every word here. It says, but in my opinion, Mishanto, his staff, or you know, his support. His staff is in the verse, each with a staff in his hand because of advanced age. He's quoting Zechariah. He's using other places in the Torah where this word is used to try and help him define the word here, right? This is very common. Um, and then in Yeshayahu, it says, a splintered reed of staff. Thus, scripture is saying that when the victim regains his strength and walks about constantly outdoors, in the marketplaces and in the streets, leaning on a staff in the manner of weak people who have been healed of illness and are still recuperating, then the assailant is absolved. Right? So he has a different layer. This is the right. debate we had, right? Rashi says it means that he got his keys, he's out the door. It's like putting on his hat, grabbing his keys, that's the staff. Along comes Nachmanides, Ramban. A little bit later he says, no, no, no. The staff implies that he's really weak and he's recovering from his illness. And scripture thus teaches that even if the victim subsequently was negligent himself in matters of health and as a result dies in his infirmity afterwards, the assailant is not put to death, which is an interesting concept um, where he goes with it. I don't want to spend too much time on that, but the two things that he says here is he walks outdoors, right, because it says he goes out, he's on his staff, and everyone can see that he's still recuperating, yet even though he's still weak and recuperating and all those things, he's still absolved, right, he's still absolved. All right. That kind of goes back to, you know, is this guy going to die and should we put the assailant to death? Exactly. And, and, and they're even making it a little more lenient for the perpetrator that if the guy himself doesn't take care of himself the way he should while he's recuperating um, and he dies... Contributory negligence. Right, and he dies later on. He dies later on, yet he had gotten to the point already where he could go out and walk on his staff the guy's absolved of the death penalty. He doesn't get... He doesn't. The rule against perpetuities. Right. <laughs> are you guys attorneys? All right. Equitable conversion. Right. In Mechilta, we find the following. If he gets up and goes about, if Scripture had only said this, I would have understood that it speaks about a case in which the victims goes about even inside the house. So, the, there now he's reading the text very carefully. It says go out. So, 
if he recovers enough that he can shuffle around his house, that does not absolve the guy yet, right? If he actually goes out of his house and walks around, then it's like the timeline stops and the guy can't get the death penalty, according to Nachman. That's it. The question's over. It's over at that point. But if he's still shuffling around his house and then he dies subsequently and he never made it out, then the other guy's still on the hook. Um, so, so that's why the scripture says outside. And if scripture had said, if, only if he goes outside without saying that he gets up, I would have understood that even if the victim is deteriorating in health, as long as he walks outside, the assailant is absolved. So this idea is, is that if for some reason he kind of managed to get outside, but he didn't get up and go on his staff or something like that, then it has to be both conditions in order for the person to be absolved. So this too is a very sound interpretation of the plain meaning of scripture of the words, if he gets up. Scripture is saying that if the victim gets up from his sickbed completely and goes out about constantly in the streets, that's how he's imputing the, the meaning of that he takes his staff and he goes outside, that this is now his regular state of affairs, even if it means that he's still limping or weak. Um, that's the, as is the custom of people of deteriorating health, even if he is weak and must lean on the staff as he walks, then the one who struck him is absolved. It's almost like um, a condition. It's, it's almost like um, it depends how it, it's going to be observed to others. Like if, if you see him outside, if other people can look at him and say, oh, that's what he normally does, it's fine. Whereas if he's in his house, you know, no one else can see him. You, you don't know if he's doing well or not. Yeah. No. Possibly. Yeah. Um, the last paragraph, right, says the basic understanding is that all this sort of example using case of what is common, but the actual law merges. That is that in order for the assailant to be absolved, the judges of the court must estimate that the victim will live, that he's recovered to the point that he's expected to live. <clears throat> so if you look at the last few verses, Nachmanides takes the biblical context and kind of puts it more in like the way of the land in his time. It's like all of this is to say that these were the biblical examples of what it would mean that where the judges would estimate that the victim is going to live, and that he's recovered to the point that he's expected to live. Nachmanides then brings it all down to, well, today the court would make that determination with maybe doctors and blah, 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 but the, in the Torah we don't have it in the same way. There's, the court system wasn't as developed in the same way as in Nachmanides' time already in the Middle Ages. So he's, he's saying that the concept here was that these are indicators that the person has passed over the, <coughs> excuse me, that line, where he's expected or is going to live. And then, if he subsequently dies, it would be a big question mark whether it was because of the original injury or something else. They don't take in, like, quality of life. <clears throat> Not so much here. Not so much here. Um, they really don't take it into consideration here. The rabbis do much later, and they do it through creative ways. Actually, one of them having to do with the eye, um, taking out the eye. There's another verse about it, and it's like, well, if you live and you don't you used to have eyesight, now you don't have eyesight, that's a difference in your quality of life, and that opens up a whole... The rabbinic law is much more similar to our modern sensibilities today, even though it was a really long time ago also. Um, biblical law doesn't address a lot of, a lot of these things. Um, all right. Questions, comments? Anybody want to say anything in particular about it? If not, I would like to zoom forward a little bit because we're certainly not going to be able to do anything, everything anyway. And I'd like to go to the Talmud on page 91. Yeah? i just make a comment on this. When you start with the bi- biblical text, you start with the foundation of the law, which has an opportunity to evolve through the centuries so that experience and, and litigators and judges and lawyers can, you know, fill in all the gaps. Mm-hmm. 
That's totally true. Um, all right, let's go to the Talmud, page 91. Um, I guess, unless anybody has an objection, I think I'm just going to keep reading for the sake of time. Um, Can we discuss that for a little while? Yeah, let's talk about that. How do you feel about that? Is that okay? All right. Um, this is the Talmud. The Talmud, as it writes here, a compilation of uh, 3rd to 6th century scholars in Babylonia with the redaction in the 6th, 7th century. Um, and it's reflecting a commentary on the Mishnah, which is from you know, a couple hundred years before zero to a couple hundred years after zero. So that's the, the time period this all falls in for those who don't know about the Talmud. This is a, um, a discussion that's happening in, in one of the business law, you know, kind of, uh, not business law, but uh, I forget what the words are in, in, in English. But anyway, um, this is a, 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 about these types of laws. Torts. Thank you. Um, anyway, in, in, uh, of the rabbis who are living in the later, the Amorayim, the 3rd to 6th century guys. If the offender says to the injured person, the offender says to the injured person, I can personally act as your doctor, right? Because remember the law was in the Torah that you have to cover their medical expenses, right? Their mm-hmm. cure. So the guy says, I'm a doctor, right? I'm, I, can, I will do that, right? And why would he want to do that? It's cheaper. He doesn't have to pay anybody else to do it. He'll just do it himself. So the other party is allowed to say back, you are in my eyes like a lion lying in wait. What does that mean? Isn't it? Like, you punched me, right? You threw a rock at my head. Now you're going to be my doctor? No way, right? Now, I'm not really sure it would be to his extreme disadvantage not to heal him, <laughs> because then he'd be liable for the death penalty. But you're allowed to say, I don't trust you, is basically what that means. I don't trust you. I want somebody different. And should the offender say to him, I will bring you a doctor who will heal you for free, right? I have a cousin. I've got a guy. i got a guy. Remember, no, none of us have to pay anything, right? He might object. He's allowed to object is what this means, saying, a doctor who heals for free is worth nothing, right? I don't want the guy who's coming for free. I want to know that this guy knows that if he heals me, he's going to get paid, right? This is, I want, like, the real deal. So what's, well, I, normally, what, what, it's so inter- to me, it's so interesting. I love when the rabbis get in these, like, discussions because, they're basically, they're, they're saying, like, there's, there's a lot of gray areas in these scenarios. Like, what does it mean you pay for the cure? Well, who's responsible for deciding what the cure is, right? And here they're saying the victim is essentially the arbitrator, for the most part, we're going to see the other side in a second, the arbitrator that they deserve the type of care that they feel is quality and, and that they trust. And it's not up to the, the person who does the damage, it could be that if he's liable to make the cure happen, then he's, res- he's also the one who gets to decide how, right? Because it's in his court. Um, but no, it's in his court for responsibility. It's not in his court for authority of how it's done. All right? And the rabbis make that clear. I just think it's a discussion from like the 3rd century? Yeah, somewhere in the 3rd to 6th century. And I have to look up which Amora it is. And then you can look up. They have these books where scholars have identified what, when, what time period they think they live. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's somewhere, you know, these rab- the rabbis that lived in the 3rd to 6th centuries. These are the ones who are talking. Yeah. No, no, no. no. Uh, CE. Yeah, CE. AD and CE are the same thing. Yeah, after the common era. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Mishnah itself wasn't edited until after mm-hmm. zero, to 200 after zero, but it's reflecting conversations from about 200 before zero to 200 after zero. Mm-hmm. And then this is the Gemara part, which is 
third century through sixth century. Um, and these are these these guys are Amoraim, they're Gemara guys. All right. Again, if he says to him, "I will bring you a doctor from far away," he might say to him, "If the doctor is a long way off, the eye will be blind before he arrives." Meaning, no, 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 you can't. Say, uh, you know, I know a guy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We're not calling that guy in. If on the other hand, and now we get the other side of the coin. If on the other hand, the injured person says to the offender, give the money to me personally and I will cure myself. It doesn't mean magically. He means, you just give me money. I'll take care of it. I'll take care of my, then we're done, right? And I'll take care of it. What's the answer? And I want, to, I want you to think about why the answer. He might retort, you might neglect yourself and thus get from me too much. What's the answer? You're not a good judge of your own... Uh, I mean, you have no, you're not in the right frame of mind to know what this will take. And, and then what might be the result? Get someone who doesn't cure you and it cost me even more. Exactly. It's not a totally up to you because if you decide, if I just give you some money and you go out and do whatever and then you don't get healed, you're going to be come back and say, I'm still not cured and you're going to want more money from me, right? But what if he dies? And then I don't know why it doesn't say that, but right. that was what I was thinking also. And then like, the guy's on the hook for the capital punishment if the cure isn't good, right? So that's another thing. Exactly. I mean, why are you going to be arguing about price if right. your life is on, on, the, on the balance of the right. whole thing? I mean, yeah. it but it's like the guy's uh, going and paying for brand name drugs and the guy's taking generics. Right, exactly. So th- th- there's, there is a concern here that the person who is injured might be taking a little advantage too. Right. This is why it takes 40 pages for me to draft a contract. Exactly for, right. Because every case in here is all is already laid out in the indemnity section of the, of the document. Well, and, and, the, and the Talmud is full of that stuff. Um, even if the injured person says to him, make it a fixed and definite sum, even if he says, you know what, I'm going to protect you from having to keep paying out because we're going to agree. For this, what you did to me, I'm going to take $1,000, which is nothing now, but I'm just saying. $1,000 for it, and I'll, I'll worry about my medical care from here. What's the problem? He might object and say, and I love this one, there is all the more danger that you might neglect yourself and thus remain a cripple, and I will consequently be called, quote, unquote, and this is a term in the Mishnah from the Torah, um, a damaging ox. Do you have any idea what you think this means? Yeah. yeah. What does it mean? Well, it's like a a, a dog that's been attacked that has attacked people, get labeled as someone who who cripples people. Right. His, re- and his, reputation, would his reputation would be right. at stake. Right. So if if I just give you money, and I don't know that you've actually engaged a doctor that's of quality, and that you're in treatment, and that you're actually trying to fix yourself, what even if you think why would somebody do that to themselves? It doesn't matter. I don't know that you're doing that and you never actually heal yourself and you live, the assumption in this conversation is that he's going to live um, and you're going to walk around crippled and everybody is going to look at me and say and this is a category of, of law I'm like the damaging I'm, I'm a guy who goes around and beats the whatever out of people and doesn't take care of the, the problems that I created when in fact this might be they got in a fight, things got a little too heated he struck him, not good, I'm not praising this guy, but people lose their cool sometimes. Um, and he did everything right. He took care of him, and, 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 and then this is what happened. So, um, okay, I'll let you react. Anything you find surprising, interesting, remarkable, in any way, shape, or form? It's kind of, 
when in the industry, if you break your leg or you're, it's worth X dollars or your eye is worth, you know, whatever, everybody, everything has a price. Okay, that's true. Anybody else? Perry? Uh, and, and this is all well, good. I really appreciate, um, you know, the boundaries that are set in, 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 discuss, in determining how much should be given, how much shouldn't be given. But at the end of the day, if, if, if somebody's really badly injured and his life hangs on the edge, and I'm the person who uh, inflicted that injury, my attitude is going to be, I'll pay whatever <laughs> to, to avoid, you know, that person dying. Right. Yeah. And, and so I'm not... I'm not going to be concerned about the boundaries <coughs> limiting how much I, I'm able not to pay. No, I, I, I think that your comment is um, most applicable yeah. where there is a serious concern that the life still hangs in the balance. Right. It seems to me that the underlying assumption of this particular discussion in the yeah. Gemara is that the person is going to live because in that um, situation about the money, um, the, the worry isn't that you're going to not get a doctor and die, the worry is, is that you're going to not get a good doctor and then I'm going to have to keep paying because then you're going to go to the next doctor and the next doctor, right, that you're going to be squeezed for money. So I think that because in that scenario there isn't even the concern about death, I think the context of this particular discussion is that y you're going to live, but you, there's a serious injury here and there needs to be some care. And if there's, it's not taken care of, there could be a permanent damage that it would be visible you know and felt by that person for the rest of their life but perhaps with the right treatment um, it would not you know have such a dire consequence mm -hmm. Renee go ahead the thing that doesn't make sense here to me is it's really nice if a rich man hits you but <laughs> was there any provision here for somebody who put you in the hospital whatever their version was and can't pay. They don't seem to have any plan for that. So, two things. The Torah itself doesn't really have great provision for that. Although the Torah, and I, I, I'm not great at memorizing verses, and like I'm not one of those people who say, quote, you know, and knows exactly where it is. Um, but the Torah does imply that there's um, some sort of uh, community okay. um, obligation to, to, to compensate people. Um, the other thing is, is that often when people didn't have money, um, and this doesn't necessarily help in this situation, although they would work for it. That's part of okay. that's the main re reason peop Jews became slaves to other Jews is because they owed them money. That is the way people like Jews are not allowed to enslave other Jews. That's why it's better to call them an indentured servant because that's really what it was. And so the person, if they didn't have money, would theoretically work for the doctor, work for somebody else who would pay the doctor. To you know, they would have to. Indenture themselves. Um, later on, the last thing that I'll add to that is later on, the rabbis took the kind of implications in the Torah um, and created uh, the concept of a community fund, which uh, institutions like the Jewish United Fund consider themselves to be based on that concept. Whether you think it's the same or not, you know, everybody has a different opinion about these types of institutions, but they have based themselves on this idea that the rabbis developed from the Torah that there should be a fund that takes care of the needs of the community, the various needs of the community. And people should be taxed, basically. There was a go-around, like a, a campaign, you know? Yeah. I, I thought it was interesting that essentially the Talmud's saying that the assailant still has rights exactly. and they need to be protected. Mm -hmm. And if we're worried about the assailant's reputation, we're worried about the assailant being, I mean, the, 
the, the assumption, more or less, is that you did something wrong. Now you're going to make you're going to pay for it. You're going to take care of it. Yeah. But the, if the the victim could then become the wrongdoer in this situation, this is designed to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, and it's interesting that the two parties have to work this out. Um, and it, the Torah seems to be interested in a not just justice, but kind of I guess maybe it's not quite harmony, but it's not just justice being served, it's that it all works out in the end. There's, a, there's an investment a little bit more in harmony here, like, okay, he gets taken care of, and the other guy who punched him, nobody feels anything. It's like after it's all said and done, everybody moves on as um, impact-free as possible from this. The assailant can go back to being the normal guy that hopefully he is, and he, this doesn't haunt him forever, and the victim is obviously taken care of, and this doesn't have to haunt him forever, and everybody can be okay moving on. It's, it's not like, okay, I've done what I needed to do by the law, check, 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 and I can walk away. Okay, well, I would phrase it differently. I think that this is all about justice, but it forces you to realize that, you know, justice requires wisdom. You know, situations aren't black and white. For sure. There's no easy answers. You really have to understand human nature and, and what's involved and see the big picture before you make a, a decision on what should be done. Great. Mary. Well, I was going to say, this, this seems all nice and set up nice, like it'll prevent people from swindling each other, and it seems all great, but assuming that it's still just two people working it out with each other and there's not some kind of mediator... People, I mean, unless they did a seminar with everybody in the village and said, okay, this is what you say when the person says this, people who are smarter than other people can still swindle other people even under this It's a great point. It's a great point. The, um, the Torah sets up, and it's not very specific about it. It's very vague. But the Torah does set up that each community has to set up a system of judges and magistrates. It doesn't say exactly what... There doesn't spell out the jobs and the rules. It doesn't give a handbook of exactly what a magistrate does, like a, the biblical police officer, what exactly are his duties, his rights, you know. But presumably, there were folks that one could appeal to to make sure that these things were followed. Um, as early on as when Moshe just left Egypt with the people, he was judging them all day long, and his father-in-law, Yitro, is the one who says to him, what are you doing? You're burning yourself and the people. They're waiting all day long, and they didn't even get to get a judgment in because you, you're the only one who's judging everybody. Um, okay, you got to set up a system of courts, and then later on we hear that it's not just courts, it's courts and magistrates, which are translated as kind of like biblical police officers, right? So, so I could hire a lawyer. Presumably, like you that. would have a place to turn to. Hierarchy. Um, a hierarchy of courts to turn to who could assign people to make sure that the law is carried forward. Um, almost all the examples that we have in the Torah of, are either laws just stated out, or if there are specific cases, and there are very few of them, but there are some, Moses ends up adjudicating all of them, and most of the ones that we hear about, God gets involved in too. Um, so we don't really have a good illustration of how this happened, which is why I can't tell you exactly how it happened when God or Moses himself doesn't get involved. But presumably there was a system, right? So um, earlier this year I saw a documentary called Girl in the River. I don't know if any of you have seen it. No. It's about... Um, 
a girl in Pakistan, modern, modern day. Um, she married without her family's permission. And um, the father and the uncle tried to kill her in an honor killing. Right. And she survived. And she's called Girl in the River because they shot her and threw her in the river. And um, she managed to survive this. And she went back to her husband's house. And the village opined that you know this needed to be resolved. And they pushed her to forgive her father and her uncle for trying to kill her. Um, and they said that you know we're a village together. We need to resolve this situation and because if there's this bad blood between the two families, no one's going to help when there's the next flood or the next you know house falls down or whatever it is. And I could see this being a very similar situation where it's a framework for the community living together and dealing with situations where there are major conflicts. Hmm. It's an interesting frame to put around it without being quite as extreme as the example that you gave, which is that we got to find a way for everyone to get back to equilibrium again. Um, as much as I just made a whole point of saying that there's a system of magistrates and, and, and uh, judges, to go, go backwards against my point, I, I would say that ancient civilizations were much more vulnerable. It's not like third party, like poli nameless police officers, right, that you don't know who they are. Everyone's a part of your community. I mean, they all, quote unquote, knew each other in a sense. So it, I could see it's an interesting frame to put it around. I like it. Thank you. The, the, um, there's a lot of commentary about the, um, the cure, but um, the, the actual um, Torah portion talks about the idleness conversation for idleness as well. And I don't think we're going to have a lot of time. Is there a, it, does the Talmud go into the idleness issues? And the totally. I don't know as much about it, okay. but the, the summary is um, uh -huh. basically some sort of calculation as to what what he would have lost because he couldn't work because of the injury. That's the idea. Uh -huh. And it would be based on the fact that there may be a man who has seven kids or something like that. It, yeah, you know, it's, it is very contextual and it depends on what, you know, the person's um, uh, job was too. These are, these are controversial sometimes for, for us because even the Talmud when, um, if a wealthy person loses all of his money, right? And then he needs to go to the public assistance program. Does he get any more or less than a poor person who loses his money? According to one of the strong opinions, he gets more than the poor person. You say, what? It's the same idea. It's contextual. It's like he went from up here to down here. He doesn't even know what to do. He doesn't even know how to live on that kind of... He does, it's like a devastation beyond devastations, right? And then other people say, of course, no, they should get the equal. There should just be an amount to get them to whatever they need, subs you know, subsistence or whatever. So, but a lot of the rabbinic law is very contextual. How many kids? What was your job? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I was going to respond in the, your comment about the judges and magistrates set up. By the time of, I would imagine, by the time of Rashi's time and throughout history, you'd go to the rabbi. Absolutely. And the rabbi would be the Talmud scholar, right? And he would adjudicate the case. And, and sometimes the rabbi even had his rabbinic thugs. Mm -hmm. He had his enforcers, is what I should probably call them, right? Mm -hmm. To enforce the law um, in the community, the religious law, because most um, medieval and earlier communities allowed subgroups to have their own laws for themselves, right? So as long as you paid your taxes and didn't kill any of the regular citizens of the land, 
in your own little communities, your law was the law. So often it would be the rabbi be the judge, and he would have his enforcers who would, who would make sure that these things were carried out. They were basically like militia or police. So um, I want to spend a, a few more minutes, and then Merle Tovian is here from, uh, who's not only from Bethel, but she's uh, here in her capacity as Melton, and she wants to pass out um, some um, mid-course evaluations. Um, and if you wouldn't mind taking a few minutes to fill that. But, so we'll do five more minutes of this, and then five minutes of evaluations, and then those of you who would like to go home and watch some game that might be on or something, um, you can do that. I want to move to commentary 6, uh, 95, in yours. Another French biblical commentator a couple hundred years after Rashi. Um, and he says the following... When a man strikes his male or female Canaanite slave with a rod, right? Remember this? And he dies under his hand. I.e., under his hand, that he dies right away within 24 hours. So again, they're trying to place like a time period on it. In, his in, in this instance, his master is killed by the sword. Wow. Isn't that crazy, right? So it's like the, 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 the slave, and again, how does he identify him? Canaanite slave. See how he added that in his commentary? That's not in the Torah. He calls him a Canaanite slave. That's why it's not in italics there. Right? He, so he, he gets killed. I mean, the master gets killed right away. The avenging means death penalty by virtue of the community enforcing it. But if he, and then again, notice how it lives for a full day, which is from the setting of the sun until it sets again or lives part of two days, some total of about 24 hours. In this instance, his master is not put to death since he is his property. Again, to the leniency, because the slave is considered um, property in this case. One ought to know that a person is killing, is killed for his killing a Canaanite slave. So he's now getting into why is this... Because we may say it's horrible and slavery and all those things, but looking at it inside out from the historical context, it's, you know, uh, Rabag wants to know, wait a second, you know, why do we even care about killing a Canaanite slave? I mean, why should that matter? Um, because one ought to know that a person is killed for his killing a Canaanite slave, whether male or female, for they are obligated in Torah, minus a few commandments, which they are exempt from, just as in the case with a Jewish woman. He's saying, normally one might think that a, an outsider slave would have no rights and have like chattel status, but actually it's not true. This is one of the places that comes to teach us that a slave, even a Canaanite slave, right, ha- we are obligated to them as a person, right, on a similar line, and you're not going to like Females in this room are not going to like this. On a similar, on a similar uh, uh, legal status to a woman, which, as I explained back in the day, women were underneath the legal auspices of their husband or their father, and they were certainly, in this, the view that, that they're trying to say is he's trying to say is they're certainly a person who has all these rights, right? So. If the Canaanite, and this happens in the Mishnah all the time, women, slaves, and minors are often in the same legal category because they're all people who have a legal status that's subsumed under somebody else's legal status. They're not property in the same way as animals or things, um, but they're not free men, right? And again, we don't like to read this because we're in the 21st century, but it wasn't that long ago in the United States. Women didn't have a vote and things like that. So I just don't want to be overly harsh on a document that's several thousand years old, right? So for this reason, the slave is encompassed by what it says when a man schemes against his neighbor. In other words, Rabag is saying what is covered by neighbor 
Canaanite slave is covered by the term neighbor, which for, for reading back on near, ancient Near Eastern culture, that's like radical, right? Since the slave is considered a neighbor to us in matters of the Torah. However, the Torah was more lenient regarding the laws of a slave since he is, in fact, another person's property. In other words, they're more lenient in regards to a slave in terms of how they would prosecute the master than they would be in terms of a woman, for example. They would be more harsh on the perpetrator if it was against the Jewish woman as opposed to a slave of any gender. For this reason, the master does have the right to discipline him, but he should not be overbearing, leading him to strike him cruelly a fatal death blow. One ought also to know, this is another reason why the Torah is phrasing it this way, that if this male or female slave was not totally his, right, and here is where any gray area allows us to be more strict with the perpetrator, then the rule of a day or two days does not apply. So this leniency that it has to be within this first 24 hours or first two days does not apply this guy is not your slave. Like if you borrowed someone's slave. If you borrowed somebody's slave, co-ownership, or what if it was just somebody's slave that you got angry at, right? What if somebody else's slave made you angry and you decided, I'm going to wha- I'm going to teach that slave a lesson. Even if the slave was wrong, if the slave did actually do something that he shouldn't have done, if it's somebody else's slave, we remove all of the leniencies. You do this to somebody else's slave, even if he dies a week later or something like that, you are responsible and he's you will just, actually put to death. He's just, exactly. He has the same status in that regard. And that goes back to the Torah itself, where it says, since he is the other's property. Exactly. Okay. And it says, it can be executed even after a long time should the slave, the slave die from the blow, as is in the case of a homicide involving any other person. So they're relating the Canaanite slave's death to any other homicide. This we learn from it saying his slave, since he is his property, as Perry just pointed out. If the slave was not his at the time that the blow was dealt and he purchased him prior to death or vice versa, um, he was a slave at the time of the blow but not at the time of the death and the law of our day or two does not apply. Now they're even getting more technical. Either one, if he, if he has to be both the, 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 the slave of the person, both at the time of his... Um, at the time of the blow and at the time of his death, right? In order for him to be exempt, if either one is not right, then he's he's persecu- prosecuted like he murdered somebody. Thus, as it says, when a man strikes his slave, he is a slave at the time of the blow, and he dies under his hand, he's a slave at the time of his death. Rabbi Moshe has already written, and this is uh, Rambam. Um, is Rabbi Moshe, Maimonides. It's already written that this is why the Torah wrote with a rod, and we already talked about this, since he has the right to discipline him. That's what the rod indicates, Simon. You were right on there. The rod indicates he has the right to discipline him, but should he have hit him with a sword, the law of a day or two days does not apply, for he does not have the right to beat him in this manner. In other words, he can only claim the leniency of this law if he hits him with a disciplining rod. And this happens to happen, right? But if he hits him with like a, he strikes him with a sword or a mace or something that is totally inappropriate for discipline purposes, then none of the leniencies apply and he straight up murdered him or straight up injured him, you know? And then the law applies differently. So all of a sudden, Raubach takes, very careful reader, right? Takes every, doesn't let one letter of the Torah go by without his commentary and then interprets it in a certain type of way that limits the leniencies that are given to the slave owner to inflict damage on on slaves. 
it can't quite get to where the 21st century would get us to, but considering he's a Middle Ages guy and he's commenting on an ancient source, this is a good example of how the rabbis can open up the Torah in different ways without actually changing its words, right? Um, but, but changing the context and the interpretation. I will commend you to read, which we will not study, um, if you want a great summary about the eye for an eye. Page 101 is a Professor Nachum Sarna's semi-long piece here, only long compared to the other. It's two and a half pages. Um, and I would commend to you to read that if you want to learn more about the context of the eye for an eye phrasing. So thank you for coming out on a special night in Chicago. Um, I am going to stop this recorder. I am going